Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. Please check your coats. The news of Dane Caffey's retirement came as a blow to the city of Baltimore. A beloved feature of the historic Governor's Theater, Caffey served over 70 years as the check room's head attendant. A lot of coats have passed through here over the years, Caffey told WKIR's Ashley Monahan each with their own story to tell. In the weeks following the local report, Tillman Brothers Publishing made public their plans to release a coffee table book on the celebrated coats of the Governor's Theater, assisted in part by the autobiographical accounts of Dane Caffey. In cooperation with the subject's standing estates and complemented by period photos from the gay 90s and roaring 20s and up through the prosperous post-war decades, Caffey's three-quarter century of detailed notes compiled into a scrapbook of clippings and extensive prose, a rare inclusion for pictorial publications, a decision applauded by photobook critics alike, notably Harper Mandley and Chase Childs, bestowers of the coveted double-sized platinum seal honoring excellence in big book publishing, offers a time-traveling tour of the theater's storied coat check as well as an illuminating understanding of the men and women who wore its garments. As part of Tillman Brothers Marketing, in an exclusive partnership with Online Oversized, the leader in online coffee table book sales, several pages of the upcoming title were posted for preview on the store's website, alongside live pre-orders. Following is a selection of that promotional sampling. With practically every winter premiere during the early 1930s, the Governor's Theater could expect to find this rich, admiral blue double-breasted ulster with red ring wallaroo fur collar walking through its doors with an escort of black longcoats gliding across the lobby's terrazzo floors. And on all occasions, accompanied by the equally unforgettable click-clack of two-tone wingtips with black pearl soles and a slightly shuffled gait, it hung from the shoulders of a stout frame of Frank Lacey-like physique, known throughout the city for their stage-trained voice and a striking facial resemblance to Broadway review singer Rufus Costello, who performed at the Governor's throughout the 1920s. Of British style and military uniform, with custom leather and salmon silk lining, the coat's true signature could be found within the sticky wool fibers and ever-evolving spatter of caramel, crusty and resembling the paintings of an abstract expressionist. An opulent pre-show canvas of confectionery mishaps, 
whopping $98, nearly triple the average weekly wage of the day, this stylish and partially endangered overcoat belonged to Baltimore gangster Vernon Sully. A once aspiring stage singer who fell into organized crime following nationwide theater closures in the early days of the Depression, Sully ran the local outfit known as the Monument City Crew, a faction of the New York-based Lombardo crime family. The portly racketeer's illicit dealings were shielded for years by his legitimate board game business. Considered within the tabletop entertainment industry as the man with the golden game pieces, Sully sold and shipped his board game riches coast to coast, still popular today. The childish nature of his organizational front extended to Sully's diet and a daily visit to Shelby's Ice Cream and Oysters, where he sat at the counter, flanked by a pair of buxom beauties, sucking and slurping with gay relish. With a voice once destined for grand halls, Sully enjoyed the attention he received for his Rufus Costello likeness, and rarely refused an opportunity to belt out a few choice courses from the Broadway fixture. Sully's love for singing, together with his wealth and resources, provided the gangster and early figure of family fun the opportunity to cut a recording of his favorite song, Row Onto Lily Lake. Vernon Sully wasn't himself a violent man, but his ruthlessness was feared on every corner. His henchmen carried out the executions while Sully serenaded his victims with song. Over time, Sully's signature death song led to a local open-ended saying, when Sully sings. The Lombardo's biggest rival, the Trentino crime family, whose territory today stretches from Atlantic City to South Florida, was headed at the time by the notorious Smokey Scarletti, an aficionado of fine cigars and the operations director for the Archer Indian Playing Card Company, known for smuggling tax-free cigarettes and deck boxes. Sealed cases of smoky stripes and unfiltered stripper decks were trafficked all along the eastern seaboard until the 1960s. On the evening of January 15, 1937, one hour before the Governor's Theater opened on Ian Von Dietry's White Crescent Moon, Vernon Sully sat alone at Shelby's counter with a slice of sour cream milk cake and a half dozen oysters myrtle when Smokey Scarletti walked through the door. In an act of retribution for the Monument City crew's hit on Trentino accountant Jack Bosco, Scarletti cued the parlor's copy of Sully's recorded single on the turntable behind the counter, moments before Scarletti's men strangled Sully with a wire. And as the record rang out, Sully struggling stifled the sound of his own serenade, an old-timey melody called Row onto Lily Lake. Sporting meets performing arts in this fashionable collage of prominent athletes who've attended the governors over the decades. Top left, 
Ivy League lacrosse star Chick Dorsey, Hobson University, 1954, wore this swanky 1920s vintage varsity full-length dyed raccoon coat to a performance of malaise and malice in the summer air. Sewn to the inside lining, on a string, hung a ukulele, ready to accompany any collegiate fight song. Top right. This 1960s elegant navy double brass button with anchor's rain cloak in the maritime style, pictured here with a navy corduroy mariner's cap, could be seen on occasion at the governor's worn by international yacht racing skipper Judith Hensley. Of the Myrtle Bay Hensleys, granddaughter of Senator Theodore H. Hensley, Judith commanded the 12-meter classified Annapolis to take three back-to-back -back victories in the Atlantic Pacific Cup. 1963 is the challenger, 1964 and 1965 is the defender, and was known statewide for her stylish, nautical-inspired fashions. Of a short, somewhat poncho cut, Dane Caffey commented in his journal, no matter the season, whenever Miss Hensley is in the house, every garment in check leaves smelling of salt. Bottom left. Tennis champion Guy Montgomery gave luster to the governor's coat room with this simple yet classy beige bone knee-length mat coat while seeing the spring show, the state of Harriet Goebbels. On the inside, you'll find gold stitching, plum and gray herringbone lining, with Montgomery's signature embroidered on a jetted non-flap pocket. In addition to a row of seven tiny felt tennis balls, signifying his seven Wainwright championships at the prestigious Lady Wainwright Lawn Tennis and Bowls Club. Despite being stripped of his 1966 title for breaking the club's all-white policy after both his polo shirt and shorts were determined to be off-white, with one official claiming cream. Bottom center. 20-year-old equestrian jouster Christine Faust could be seen some evenings sporting this black and white houndstooth swing coat with horsehair stuffing, belt, and black faux fur collar and four-inch cuffs. During a performance of Which Way to Terrytown, after hanging in check next to horse breeder Gary Mabin's Harmon and Hughes woven wool overcoat, a matchbook belonging to Faust was mistakenly deposited into Maven's inner patch pocket by Dane Caffey's apprentice, Willie Dawes, pictured here with Faust, 1963. An error that ultimately led to the meeting of a Maven stud named Foxy Noxie and the birth of a colt called Pitter Patter, which Faust rode to win the Maven Mare Ring Toss Jousting Tournament in 1968. Bottom right. This full-length, multicolored, dyed hamster fur coat was a showy staple of the governor's check room in the 1970s. Custom-tailored for six-foot-eight heavyweight boxer Lenny Winters, its patchwork assembly of tiger lily red, sunflower gold, cocoa suede brown, and broadcast news blue is the work of renowned formal wear designer Taddeo Sinclair. With a $4,000 price tag left hanging from the hem, this kaleidoscope hamster fur is but one of Winters' 157 rodent-specific furs. As soon as the scent of Yanagia Dicodons hit your nose, you knew the next thing you'd see was her, Miss Burke. 
standing there in stark white elegance, as pure as the driven snow. Dane Caffey. A showpiece for the governor's coat room, placed at the end of the rack, if not displayed on a dress form at the front of the room to promote the house's opulence, this knee-length polar fox fur coat with mock neck belonged to a petite profile of a somewhat generous station. Typically accented with glinting diamond earrings that would dance and play in the light of the lobby's Art Deco chandelier, this fur and the figure who graced it commanded an irresistible presence. An aura of luxury and grace with beauty best suited for a box seat. Lined in frost-colored satin with hook closures, it adorned the youthful contours of socialite Charlotte Burke, wife of late Baltimore financer Russell Parrish. Born in Boston, never knowing her mother, Burke was brought up by her father and stepmother in the affluent royal boroughs of London in the 1960s, where they worked for wealthy jewelry retailer Bernie Desmond. At the age of 17, following her father's passing, Burke fled her abusive stepmother and moved back to the United States. From New York City to Baltimore, Burke worked the cufflink counter at Dolbrook's department store on Howard Street, and in 1978, made the acquaintance of her future husband's then wife, Teresa Parrish after she entered the store looking for a set of rose gold cufflinks for her husband. I see myself in her, a reflection, in her diplomacy, her radiance, Parrish wrote in her diary. That is to say, a reflection cast in a less tarnished mirror. The two quickly became close, spending stolen afternoons on shopping sprees at posh boutiques and luncheons at fancy restaurants, makeovers and jewelry, insisted upon and paid for by Parrish. Charlotte soon thereafter met Teresa's husband, Russell, who was in his late 40s. He was charismatic, fatherly, and always the doter. Following several weeks of lighthearted evenings and enchanting outings with Charlotte, including a weekend at the parish's dune-swept beach home in Myrtle Bay, the three had grown inseparable. Charlotte provided both of them with what the other could not. And after their return, the parishes made the unassuming yet promising store clerk a proposition, inviting her to board in the guesthouse of their Roland Park Manor in return for simply being a part of their lives. In Charlotte's statement to the police, she recounted a terrible thunderstorm her first night on the property and an explosive argument between Russell and Teresa. The window in Mr. Parrish's, Russell's room, was open and the lights were on. They were both going off on each other about something, but I couldn't make out any specifics. I remember the next day catching Mr. Parrish spying on me from his window while I changed. He saw that I saw him, but it didn't faze him. Besides, I like older men. I reminded him of her, 
Especially when I wore my hair that way. He liked it that way. Up. Like his drinks. Their first sexual encounter occurred several days later, when Russell took Charlotte under the gazebo, while Teresa watched them with a glass of wine from the upstairs porch. That's when I discovered he had picked me out at the store prior to Teresa coming in, Charlotte commented to the detectives. I was for him, a gift for their marriage. The next week, while Russell was in Boston on business, Teresa surprised Charlotte in the bath, where they became intimate, before moving to the countertops of the main house kitchen. A maid found Teresa Parrish's body the following morning at the bottom of the rose trellis at the side of the house, with a pair of pruning shears sticking out of her neck. The incident was later ruled an accident, as Russell Parrish exclaimed with tears during the trial, I always had to remind her to put up the shears. Charlotte Burke eventually married Russell Parrish, who left young Charlotte his entire estate two years later after he was tragically struck by lightning with a pair of pruning shears sticking out of his neck. An investigation and re-examination of Teresa Parrish's death uncovered an eyewitness who saw Russell Parrish in Baltimore the night Teresa Parrish died, heading northwest on the parkway, contradicting Russell Parrish's statement that he was in Boston the night of his wife's death. Investigators concluded that Russell Parrish killed his wife, Teresa, after finding her with Charlotte Burke, which attorneys recreated in the courtroom with bushes from the parish property. And after living with the guilt of his actions for two years, Russell Parrish stabbed his throat in the backyard with his wife's garden shears and staged the lightning to make the scene look like an accident. following handwritten letter, now behind glass and hanging in the governor's lobby, was written on October 23, 1926, during the theater's first week of operation, and shortly after the employment of checkroom attendant Dane Caffey. It is addressed to a local Baltimore dry cleaner, detailing a mysterious stain that appeared on the lapel of parapsychologist Marcus Rublin's black 1899 Inverness cape, shown below while in check during the theater's premiere production, Velvet Evenings, director Rex Wellman. Dear Lucky Sun Cleaners, please submit this garment for service. I yield to your expertise, if not a higher power, as I've never seen anything quite like this before. The focus area is the upper left lapel and a peculiar translucent goo with strands of web gossamer slimy, almost greasy to the touch, and producing a thick, elastic globule that expands between my fingers, to which I hold to the light, finding an odd green lepidity, sometimes pink. 
please extract and eradicate by any means necessary. The owner of the coat has allowed me to remedy the matter as the blemish occurred on my watch. To that, I've been instructed to inform you of the coat's properties as well as the owner's trait, as both possess a spiritual nature. It's only my second day on the job, but I anticipate this to be the source of the stain. Despite the owner's assertion, it was not work-related, nor anything having to do with busting up that fraudulent seance earlier in the night in which the spiritualist was selling jars of ectoplasm under the table. Therefore, I'm to advise you of all the known spirits confined within the cape. Why bottle any trouble? Leave sorrow like a bubble. Just look at those smiling skies. First, the murderous hermit, Miriam Joe Duane, who was hung in Prosperity Park. I'm told Duane used to innocently prick his victims with a pen as they sat next to him on a bench. So, mind your needle and thread. Second, the chatty spirit of Olga Raskin, the Willow House's former haunt, notorious for her late-night nagging from Mr. Rubling's hole tree. Third, Polly Trimble, who chopped up her whole family with an axe and set fire to the little pieces. I would avoid flammables in your process. And finally, 17th-century swill-belly marionette performer Cromwell Kettle, a spirit with the tendency to tighten the cape's collar fasten unexpectedly, resulting in shortness of breath and, in extreme cases, severe chafing. Needless to say, time is of the essence. Upon services rendered, a hazard payment will be added to the bill for your troubles. Indebted, Dane Caffey, The Governor's Theater. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at tecasualfriday.com or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.